It's good to see you this morning. I want to welcome those that are joining us online and uh, at our Edgewood campus. Uh, but hey, it's great to see you. Um, we are uh, nearing the end of October, and I don't know about you, but the older I get, the faster that just seems to come every single year. Um, today, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with, uh, with me. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. Uh, if you haven't been uh, for quite some time or uh, you're just now joining us as a guest, hey, we're glad that you're here. And uh, I'll try to catch you up a little bit on Romans chapter 6 uh, as we kind of begin to wrap up the last part of this chapter. And we'll move into chapter 7 next week. Uh, actually, we won't move into chapter uh, 7 next week. Next week, we have baptism celebration uh, in Edgewood and... Uh, and so we'll, we'll move into chapter 7 in a couple of weeks. How's that? Um, but if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Um, in Romans chapter 6, really verses 1 through 14, what you see is that Paul is writing to the church of Rome, and he's just helping us realize and identify that the curse of sin has been broken because of Christ, and that because we have identified with him in a death, a burial, resurrection, uh, that we also are walking in a new life in Christ. And so we are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to walk in the futility of our ways. We no longer have to walk in the foolishness, as Paul would say in other places, like the Gentiles. Uh, even though we are Gentiles, most of us, right? Uh, but what he's just saying is you no longer are enslaved to sin. As he closes this chapter, he helps us realize that we also, because we walk in a new life in Christ, that we do not have to give ourselves over to the things that we used to give ourselves over to. That we don't have to yield um, um, anymore to um, the error of our ways, uh, that we could in many ways uh, give ourselves over to Christ rather than to temptation. And so that's what he's going to talk about. Really, there's going to be three words that if you have your Bibles, I want you to write down, and then I'll show them to you up on the screen here in a few moments. Uh, but you're going to look at verses 14 and 15. We're going to see the forgiveness of God. Uh, if you look at 16 through 20, we're going to see the freedom that we have because of him. And then if you look from 21 to 23, you're going to see the fruitfulness that a believer walks in. So we're going to talk about those three things today, forgiveness and freedom and fruitfulness. We'll begin in verse 14 with the idea of forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness, or if you wanted to write another word, perhaps you could write the word favor down. I think that fits as well. Uh, but in verse 14, which we closed with last week, I want to begin here this week. And it says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. So prior to knowing Christ, we are under the law. Uh, if you have been with us for any length of time, you realize the law is the Ten Commandments and uh, 613 other moral, civil, um, and ceremonial laws that the Jews had that they were to keep. The problem with that is that it was impossible to keep. Uh, the more we try to keep the law, the more we realize that we fail often. Uh, prior to knowing there was a law, you didn't have stop signs, you didn't have red light signals, you could blow right through those. You didn't realize like it was a big deal. But then once there were stop signs and there were road maps and uh, there were signals and you blow through those, you realize, hey, that's a pretty big deal. The more you have of those things, the more you realize I fall short. And so that's what Paul is just helping us realize. But because we have a new life in Christ, our life is now hidden in him it's, he's just making it very clear that sin no longer has dominion over you, that you not, are not bound to the law, but you live under grace. 
So then he asks a question in verse 15, which is going to seem very similar to the question he asked in verse 1. But in verse 15, he says, What then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And then he has a similar answer as to what he did in verse 1 and 2 of the same chapter. And he says, By no means. So everybody say, By no means. So what then are we to sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. He says, by no means. Now, what's interesting is, is if you're reading this, and at first glance, you're just kind of reading through the chapter, you're like, he's asking the same question again. But he's actually not. The first question he asked, are we to continue to sin that grace would increase? And then he says, by no means. The idea of the very first verse that you would see in Romans chapter 6, he's asking the question, in the present tense, should we continue to sin Because we have God's grace. Meaning, should we have a habitual lifestyle of sin? And he answers the question, no. Meaning that because we have a new life in Christ, we don't continue every day the same pattern of sin. We would agree with that. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you would say we shouldn't continue a lifestyle that's erroneous to what we would know is the basic tenets of our Christian faith. Then in verse 15, he asks a similar question, but he leaves out a word, continue. And he says, are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And what he's asking the question is, is it okay for a believer to take a night off? For instance, it's just been a long week. It's been a long time since you've caught up with your college buddies. It's been a long time since you've gone out with the girlfriends dancing. Hey, is it okay just to let it all go for a night? Not a continual thing. Not, not, this isn't a pattern in your life that you're doing all the time. It's not like, hey, I'm always living in sin. I'm always doing things that are against God's word. But in this case, he's asking the question, is it okay if you slip away out of town where no one else knows, is it okay to take a night off? And he says what? By no means. What he's basically saying is is that because we have a new life in Christ, our goal should not be to use that to our advantage because we live under grace. That's his point. And so he goes, we don't continue, verse 1, to just sin as we see fit. At the same time, hey, we need to be careful that we're not taking the night off, that because we've had a long week, that we're just going to go and make a fool of ourselves because we live under grace. Make sense? Uh, it can be very convicting, right? And so here's what I want you to realize, that taking a night off doesn't have to involve some sin that you wouldn't want anybody to, to be aware of. Friends, I can be tempted just to, to live in comfort and just kind of in some ways to say, you know what, I just want a, a night off. I want a night off from doing the work of God. I want a night off, a weekend off of just being able to be free from all the challenges of ministry and parenting and being a husband. I mean, isn't that also similar? And the reality is, is that we don't get nights off. We don't get days off. We don't get to, uh, to do anything different than what God's calling us to because of who we are in Him, which is namely bondservants. Um, and we are bondservants to Christ. And so we do live with forgiveness, but because we have forgiveness, it also brings about freedom. But what does that freedom look like? Let's, let's check it out in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads 
to righteousness. Paul is continuing the same idea that he had presented earlier in verses 12 and 13. But what he's basically saying is that because we, we are in Christ, he's saying, hey, you've, you've got to decide, are you going to be a slave to the former life in which you lived, or are you going to be slave to the new life in which you would say that you are living as a believer of Jesus? Here's what he's saying. He goes, you can be a slave to sin, or you can dedicate your life to that. And he goes, and you'll... You'll receive death. That's what he's saying. Or he goes, you can dedicate yourself and be a slave to obedience. And he says, and you'll receive righteousness. But what he's saying is you can't have both. As a believer in Christ, you can't give yourself over to disobedience and expect that you're going to have life and freedom and fruitfulness. At the same time, if you give yourself over to life and freedom and fruitfulness, um, he says, you should realize that it's going to produce in you something that's called righteousness. He's just giving you that very clear idea. Verse 17, he goes on and he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin. You have become slaves of righteousness. So he goes, there's one that leads to death, which is a dedication to sin, and there is one that leads to life. It's an obedience, which brings about righteousness to us. He says, and, and that happens when you and I are obedient from the heart. But the question that you look at, if you have your Bible in front of you, you want to see it on the screen, is verse 17. We'll put it for you back up there again. I want you to see this. Become obedient from the heart to what? And he says it very clearly, to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. Which when you were reading this, you go, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it seems to be indicative that you and I would be committed to the same things that Jesus and his followers were committed to, and that was the word of truth. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 47, we oftentimes use that as we're talking about community and living in fellowship with one another. But one of the things that we see is they were committed to the, the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and the fellowship of one another. That's the idea here. He goes, when you and I are being slaves of obedience... He says, you're going to be, uh, in some ways, cut to the heart because of the standard of teaching to which you're committed. You're going to be committed to the apostles' teaching. The idea is that you're going to be committed to God's Word. You and I are going to, to, to desire to read God's Word, to live by God's Word. That is the standard of truth in which we live by. The question is, is, uh, Paul is really asserting here is he goes, if you're going to be a slave to something, which all of us are, you're a slave to something. He goes, you get to choose what it is. Now think about it real quickly. What are you a slave to? Are you a slave to things that are going on in your own life? Are you a slave to uh, things that are happening at work or slaves to uh, you know, having anxious thoughts and feelings? Or are you a slave to things like that? In some ways you go, man, they just don't produce a whole lot of fruitfulness. Or in Paul's case, he's saying you can be a slave to righteousness, that you would be set free from sin, that you would walk in Christ, that you would, you would be committed to his word, to, to the apostles' teaching. He goes, that's what you would desire. When I think about this idea, I think about many texts throughout the scriptures, but probably a handful of that just come to mind right off the top of my head as I think about Psalm 119. Uh, Psalm 119 is an entire chapter the, de dedicated to God's Word. The longest chapter in all your Bible. If you're just wondering how important God's Word is 
to our lives, you can go read Psalm 119. Uh, But in verses 9 and 10, it just asks the question, how can a, uh, a, a young man keep his way pure? So how does a young man, how does, how does he live a life of godliness? And he says, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments, is what the psalmist says. What an incredible idea. In verse 14, in that same chapter, uh, David says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I put my hope in your word. That's what he's talking about. This is what Paul is indicating. He goes, if you're a slave of righteousness, he goes, you are cut to the heart and you follow after the apostles' teaching. The standard of living is God's word. Uh, It reminds me of what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I'll manifest myself to him. If you remember uh, the half-brother of Jesus, his name is James. In James chapter 1, verse 22, he encourages his readers. He says, hey, don't merely be hearers of the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what, what, do what it says. What is he talking about? What is the what? It's God's word. That's the idea. That's what Paul is just reminding his reader to, to do. He goes, if you, want, if you want to experience freedom, he goes, be committed to the apostles' teaching. He goes on in verse 19, and he says, And I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. When he's talking about this, he's saying, Look, I'm giving you an example that we can all understand in our flesh. And I think Paul probably is choosing an example that makes sense in that culture, but even now could be very offensive. For instance, we we know right now that just in our nation, we've struggled with uh, racial tension and equality and those conversations, which I think are very valid conversations and are good ones to have. But Paul is using an example here of slavery. And what he's basically saying, hey, you're going to be a slave to something. So when he's using this analogy, he goes, look, I, I want you to realize that it, it could hit you right in the face. Because a lot of the people that he is writing to in some ways has experienced that. They are either people who are masters and have slaves, or there are many of those who have been slaves and may now be freed, or they may be slaves now and still have masters that hold them in captivity. But it is a very interesting parallel that he is using here and is one that would cut people to the heart. He goes on and he says, For just as once you were presented as members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Here's the idea. He's saying, look, if you understand what it looks like to be a slave... So imagine what it would look like to go to a new place and act as if you were ruled by the old, old one. Let me just give you this example. Let's say that tomorrow morning you were going to a new job. Uh, you've had it with your former employee and you're like, hey, I, need, I, I got a better job, I got better benefits. And, and you show up tomorrow and you go all the way up until lunchtime. And then you decide at lunchtime that you're not going to listen to your new boss, that you're actually going to go back to your old employee and ask him what he wants you to do at the new place that afternoon. That would be crazy, right? Like you just, you hear that, you're like, that's ludicrous. I'm not going to go to my old boss to ask him what I should do in my new job. That's what Paul's saying here. That's the best way I could explain it to you. As believers in Christ, 
who are no longer ruled by our former way of living. We have identified with Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection. We are living a new life in Christ. We do not go to our former boss, the one that we were slave to, namely Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We don't ask him his opinion on what we should be doing as slaves of righteousness. Which is crazy because so many of us, we are not committed to the apostles' teaching. We're not committed to the growth and the sanctification, a big church word for growing up into maturity. We're not committed to those things because so many of us, we continue to take advantage of God's goodness and grace. We think, oh, our citizenship is kept in heaven and that's enough. And then we just kind of continue to mosey through life and we forget that, hey, God wants us to grow up that he wants us to become conformed to his image, that we should look more like Jesus tomorrow than we did today, and we certainly should look more like Jesus next year than we did the previous year. So the whole idea that Paul is asserting here is he goes, if you're going to be a slave to something, you need to know what you're a slave to. And he says, you're either a slave to sin and the old former life of living, or he says, you are a slave to righteousness. Friends, if you are a slave to righteousness, you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, Paul is in many ways just saying you can take it to the bank that the more that you live like Jesus and for Jesus, the more you'll look like Jesus. But the more that you live for yourself or for your own kingdom or for this world, the more that you're ruled by the flesh, the more that you're ruled by a love of this world, he says, the more you'll look like it. He said you are either a slave to Christ and to righteousness or you are a child of disobedience. And you are being ruled by a former manner of life and living. And he says, you can't have both. Make sense? That's what he's saying. So what does he say? He goes, hey, you have a new boss. Um, Kenneth Wurst uh, actually kind of helps people understand, like, what what does it look like to have the conditions of slavery? And I think it's really helpful for you to see this because I want you to see just in general what it would have meant for them in that particular time, in that setting, but also what it what it means for us as believers of Christ. So there are four conditions that have to be met uh, in terms of just really slavery. One of them is something that you were, you were born into, was a condition of slavery. It was something that you inherited. It was just a, a part of that culture and that life. The second one is, is that um, your will was swallowed up by the will of another. So meaning that you really were subjecting yourself to the will of another master. So you were born into it, and when you were born into it, you had little voice. You, you couldn't stand up against your master um, if, if, if he was a brutal man. It would not, it would not be uh, becoming of you to do that. The third thing is, is that you were bound to a master, and only the bonds of death could break it. So you were, you were bound to that particular master until you either escape or run away, but really you're still, you're still a slave. They've tracked you down. You're still theirs unless death breaks that bond. And so you needed that master to die. And then the other one was this person would serve his master to the disregard of his own interest. Not easy, but that's what a slave did. And so you see the conditions here. You're born into it. You disregard your own life and yourself. You're swallowed up by the will of another. And only the bonds of death break it. 
So when you start thinking about that, you think of what Paul is writing to. He's going, let me give you this analogy. You're a slave to something. He goes, you're either a slave to to your old life or you're a slave to righteousness. Now, let's look at our old life, what we were born into. Okay, Think now, not about a slave on a compound, but about a slave like you and I to death. The one that we were born into. Um, It would be this, that you and I were born as slaves to sin. You were all born into sin. That is the one thing that we all have going for us. We were all born as children of wrath. We were all revealing in our lives um, sinfulness. Um, We were all swallowed up by sin, and it held us captive. Like, that is... That's what has enslaved us. We are all enslaved to that. Um, Our bondage to sin requires death as a payment. Something that can only break the bond is death. And then the biggest deal, too, is we are enslaved to sin to the point that we would disregard our own interest. That sin is what destroyed us. We couldn't see correctly correctly. Paul would write it this way to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 1. He would just say, your hearts were darkened. We couldn't understand. That's why we realize, like, hey, we are slaves of disobedience. We are slaves of darkness, of wrath, of sin. But friends, does that have to be the way we live? No. Because of Christ, we can be set free from our former way of living. That's the idea here. But the question is, is when you're set free, what Paul is asking is, are you really free? Are you free to go and do your own thing now? That because Christ has laid his life down for you, paid the penalty of your sin, bought your ransom, freed you from the old uh, master, which is sin, death, the world, Satan. Now that he's freed you, are you free to just do whatever you want? That is the question Paul is asking here. And the answer is no. But now you are a slave to whom? You are a slave to Christ. You are, as Paul would say, a bondservant, doulos. You and I are now slaves to righteousness. How? We're born again. And when we're born again, we're born into a family that is the family of God. We are citizens of his kingdom. Friends, as people of Christ, our wills are swallowed up. We do not live for our own will, but we live for the will of our master. We live to do the work of Christ. We are his ambassadors. We are um, his body. He is the head and we are his hands. We are his feet. We are, are living for him and not our own agenda. We are bound to him with the bounds that, uh, and, and the bonds that only Christ and death could break. The reality is he tells us though that he dies once for all is what he said in this same chapter. Why? So that we no longer have to be bound to our former way of living. We no longer have to be children of wrath. We no longer have to be slaves of disobedience. We can now be set free. And because of the bonds of death, we are united with him in what? His death. And it is death that he gives us freedom. And now we get to disregard our own fleshly interest and we get to live for him. Philippians 2, have the same attitude as that, what? Of Christ. Consider others' interests above your own. That's the idea. That's what believers do. Why? Because we take the example, the pattern 
of Jesus, the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, that's who we identify with. So yes, we are slaves, but we are slaves to Christ. And slaves to Christ means there is freedom and there is joy and there is hope and there is peace and there is love. Even as we serve others when it's not always easy, we put on Christ, we clothe ourselves with compassion, we clothe ourselves in his righteousness, and we are now slaves for him. If you understand that, go ahead and say capiche. That's the idea, is that we are slaves of righteousness. Which he goes on in verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. This is a really difficult verse to understand. Um, like I, I've read it so many times. I've looked up so many commentaries on it. I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. So if you get a really good interpretation, like, man, it's so easy. Hey, would you share it with me? Genuinely, I'm asking that. Would you come and just go, hey, I think this is what it means. Um, I think the best idea of this, um, just this particular verse and this text before we move on, is when it says, when you, were, when you were slaves of sin, which is true, you were free in regard to righteousness. I think the best interpretation here is that even though you are a slave now to Christ and righteousness, it does not give you the ability to think of yourself more highly than you ought. And here's why. Because of Paul, what he's going to move into in Romans chapter 7, he's basically saying, um, I know in verse 18, I know there is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh apart from Jesus Christ. I think that what he's helping the audience and the reader see here is that you and I are not more morally upright now because we are slaves of righteousness than what we were as slaves of disobedience. Meaning, just because we know Christ, we can't look around and go, hey, let me boast in who I am. Because we are still nothing apart from Christ. The only, thing we, the only way we are anything is because Christ stands in the gap for us. He is our mediator and our high priest. I think he's helping the audience realize that just because you're a slave of righteousness doesn't give you the right to go around and go, hey, look at my righteousness. We don't boast and revel and glory in ourselves. We boast and we revel and we glory in Christ, the one who stands in our place, knowing that without the mediator, Jesus Christ, we are doomed, we are destined for destruction, and we could not rightly enter into God's presence without the Son of God. I think that's a great interpretation of that. Um, it's the best I got anyway. Let's move on and let's talk about fruitfulness. So we've talked about, uh, we've talked about a life um, where we see forgiveness. We see freedom in Christ, even though freedom still yokes us as a slave to righteousness. Now let's look at fruitfulness. Verse 21, I love this. He says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He, he, goes, he does a throwback here to the garden. Now, the reason I love this is because in student ministry, we've been walking in through redemption and the garden. And just the last couple of weeks, we have seen the response of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, their first initial response to their sin was to run and hide. They ran and hid in guilt and in shame and denial. They now knew that they were naked and they were afraid. 
and they, they ran and they hid from, them, from, from God in shame and guilt and all those things. So what I want you to realize is that the immediate result of sin always is to run and hide in guilt and shame and doubt, always. But listen, even though that's the immediate result of sin, that is not the final consequence. The final consequence, Paul says, the end of those things is death. See, what we oftentimes do, we look at and we run and we hide sin, it causes us to cover up. That's what sin wants us to do. We cover it up. We run, we, we distance ourselves, we do all that, but God still pursues. But what's interesting is, is he goes, look, the initial taste of sin is shame and guilt and darkness and denial. You remind yourself that you're a slave of unrighteousness. But he goes, you need to know that that's what ends in death. They didn't know the initial curses uh, in the Garden of Eden, even though they had responded that way. It's not until later that God pursues them in the garden and says, Hey, Adam, where are you? Hey, Eve, what have you done? And then you see the consequences in which we know the most devastating consequence in Genesis chapter 3 was death. But do you see here, Paul is just saying, he goes, the things that, the things that you get from unrighteousness and, and unfruitfulness, he goes, those are the things you're ashamed from. You're ashamed of sin. He goes, and they, they end in death. But look at this. But, verse 22, you can circle that word. It's a great word there. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life, which is the good news. He goes, look, even though you're a slave, even though you're a bondservant of the Most High God, even though you're an ambassador to His cause, and even though, yes, you are to love others when they're unlovable, and you are to exude joy and confidence and hope, even then when it seems that it's daunting and hopeless, when you are to pursue peace with all men as much as possible, even though they don't seem to be peaceable, he goes, those are the things that are a person of righteousness does, and those things, they lead to what? Eternal life. He goes, there's two different ways of living. He goes, you can live yoked to, to the world and to your flesh and to the enemy. And he goes, and you will not experience fruitfulness. You will experience the curses that were laid out in Genesis chapter 3. He says, but as a bondservant of Christ, he goes, you can experience eternal life. Now listen, when I think about fruitfulness, I think about a fruit tree. And I think about a fruit tree, I think about two things. I think about quality and I think about quantity. A good fruit tree has quality fruit and then there's an abundance of it. Okay, I have fruit trees and listen, they are not ever what I would deem as quality. Either because there's only one peach on the tree and, and because it got eaten before I got to it. But I've, I've yet to experience that abundance of fruitfulness in my fruit trees. Why? Because there's not quality and there's not quantity. But friends, that's what Christ wants for us. He wants quality and he wants quantity. When you think about quality of life, what is, what is it that God wants for us? I think he wants a, a quality of life where we would see in John chapter 10, verse 10, what Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to do what? To give life. And what? Abundantly. I, I've come to give it abundantly. The reality is, is that just because you're a slave of righteousness does not mean that you shouldn't have a, a quality life. 
Now, I'm not talking about riches and wealth, and I'm not talking about health that will last forever. What I'm talking about is peace in the midst of the storm. I'm talking about a solid rock, a firm foundation when the waters rise. I'm talking about joy in the midst of death and hardship. I'm talking about an abundant, joy-filled life, a freedom from anxiousness and toil and strife, even though we live in a world that should produce that. But we have what? Peace. Why? Because we know who's in control. We experience tribulations. There is hardship, but the expectation is is that there's a quality of life now because we know there's a quantity of life to come. Reminds me of Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, wondering why in the world Jesus didn't show up and their brother Lazarus was able to die. Well, Jesus makes the point, I think, that there's something more to offer than this world and this life, which is temporary. Even though you can have quality here, he goes, there is something more to come. Look what Jesus says to Mary and Martha. Um, He says to Martha in verse 25 of John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks the question, Martha, do you believe this? Martha, do you believe that, that one day I'm going to bring about a final resurrection? Do you believe that, that you're going to experience the fruitfulness of knowing me? And it's not just a quality of life here and now, but it is a quantity of knowing that there is a harvest that one day will be fulfilled in the presence of God. Now, friends, here's the deal. When we think about just our own fruit, we think about our life and what we expect from God, the question that I have for you is this. Do you think that the longer your fruit tree is in the ground, the better the fruit should be? Think about this. If we have a fruit tree and it's been planted a year, compare that now in your mind to the fruit tree that's been there for five years, now to the one that's been there for 10 years, now to the one that's been there for 15 years. Friends, which one ought to produce the most fruit? The one that has the deepest root system, right? Which one should be easier to pluck up? The one that has the shallow root system. So year one, fruit trees shouldn't produce anything like year five. Year five, nothing like year 10, and year 10, nothing like year 15. The point of this, and I think what Paul is helping us realize, is that because we live in Christ and we are members of his body living in righteousness, the longer we do that, the greater we should be. At some point, the believer in Christ, because we are bound to him, should no longer be mere saplings, but we should be referred to as oaks of righteousness. How long does it take for an oak of righteousness to be produced? And you might say, well, years. Years. But what's interesting is, is that in God's time, he can take, mere saplings, and within a handful of years, he could begin to make you into a mature oak of righteousness. Now, where I would say the challenge might be is you would say, well, I've known Christ for 30 years, and you still look like a sapling. That, I think, was what Paul was saying. Hey, don't live in a former manner of living. Live now as slaves of righteousness. And that's why then he concludes this chapter and this idea with This text in verse 23, which is used all the time, but look what he says. For the wages of sin is death, 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in context, what he's saying is, he goes, look, you can have the fruit from unrighteousness, and he goes, and that's not going to yield much, or you can have the fruit of righteousness, which produces both quality and quantity, abundant life in Christ. He goes, here's what you need to know. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the reason he says that is because we live in cultures in which we readily receive a wage for our work. That is what we get And what he's saying, he goes, doesn't a wage usually sustain life? I mean, think about that. Isn't it your wage that gives you the ability to put food on the table, the ability to buy a vehicle, the ability to put a roof over your head? In many ways, we would think a wage is what produces life. But he gives you a contrary idea. He goes, no, this wage of sin is what produces death. So he's just helping you realize that we oftentimes can take something, we go, oh, a wage, so life-given. He goes, well, when it's sin, he goes, it produces death, which is not what we, des- what we should desire, and it's not ultimately what God desires for us. And so he closes this thought. He just helps us realize that death is what will, will overwhelm the sinner. And he says, but you can have free life. And where is it? In Christ. Now, friends, here's the deal. If we live in Christ and we experience eternal life in Him, you ought to see it in the here and now. Like you ought to see a difference in all of us because of what Christ has done for us. And I always just encourage you that there are a lot of ways that I think the world can see that you love the Lord. Um, I think they should be able to see it because you study the Apostles' Word and this teaching. I think they ought to see it because you exude love and joy and kindness towards others, even when others can be difficult. I think they ought to see it in your love and your affinity for God's local church. I believe that others should be able to see it because of the way you serve the body of Christ. I think that's why we're here. We're members of one body, all members doing a different part. I think they ought to be able to see it by the way that you and I live in community with other people, that we have people who hold us accountable and who care for us well and and make sure that we have all that we need as we produce Um, as oaks of righteousness. I think there's lots of ways that we demonstrate our faith. I think we even do it when we are out in the world and we're in our workplaces and we are set apart and we're different. Friends, what I would tell you though is this, is that every single one of us has a part to play in the kingdom of God if we are slaves of righteousness. And people ought to be able to see a clear difference between an old life formerly in your sin and a new life in Christ. So friends, what does a new life in Christ look like? What does it involve? I would encourage you, if you don't know, to search the Scriptures for it. What I would just encourage you also to do, hey, don't take my word for it. But what I do want you to realize is that one of the things here that I oftentimes hear, and I heard it this week, is that Stone Point um, believes that everybody should be committed, particularly if you're a member. And I'm like, yeah, I, I see that in the Scriptures. But the question I think oftentimes that's missed is why? Why? Is it because leadership makes you do that? I hope not. I really genuinely hope not. But I hope that it's that we desire to be pillars and buttresses of truth. I pray that it's because we desire to be oaks of righteousness. I pray that it's because there's a world that is enslaved to sin and that they are producing things that will not lead to life, but only death. And I pray that we are the ones who can tell them the difference. And I pray that we would be so committed to Christ as ambassadors and slaves of righteousness 
that we would desire to be plugged into our local church, but more than that, that we would desire to be the local church as we go. And I pray it's nothing more than that. And so, friends, as we uh, dismiss in a few moments with a song, um, may we go with joy in our hearts, hope in our lives, and may we have a song to sing that points people to the King of Kings, the very one we yoke ourselves to. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you that you desire to make us slaves of righteousness. I pray that you would produce in us things that bear fruit. I pray that that fruit will last, and I pray that as we produce fruit, it's only preparing us for our heavenly home. Father, we thank you that a heavenly home is possible, not because of our good works, not because of the things that we have done or accomplished, but Lord, simply because your plan was to send your son Jesus perfectly and morally upright, never sinned, to die on a sinner's cross where we should have been hung ourselves. Lord, you hung your son there. You put on him the wrath of, of God um, and, and he took our sin and he took our shame and he took our place so that we might experience a new life in Christ. No longer having to be yoked to sin, we can be yoked to you in righteousness. Thank you for that plan. It is a brilliant plan. It is a plan that I could not come up with. I am not wise enough to have the idea to take somebody morally perfect that meets the legal demands and then kill him as if he was a slave to unrighteousness. That, that baffles me. And so, Lord, I thank you that your plan was grand and it was great and it made a way for sinners to experience the grace and the freedom and the hope of Jesus. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.